Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Our text this morning is coming from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, but I want to talk a little bit about, first, about the Sermon on the Mount, because this is the context for our text. And this is the longest sermon Jesus gives in the Bible that's recorded. He is out. He has been ministering to people. He has been healing people, working miracles. He has disciples following him. He has a big crowd that's following him. He sees a big crowd on that day who've been tagging along. He goes up on the mountain and he has everyone gathered around him and he begins to preach. I wanted to go through the sermon quickly from a hundred feet above so that we have some context for where we're going to drop in in a minute. It's probably not an easy sermon to outline. I don't know if anyone would have been there. Matthew was there. I don't know how good of an outliner he was, but the Holy Spirit was pleased to give us this. And so let's go through it now, again, from about 100 feet above, just looking very quickly at the sections starting in chapter 5. He starts with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those, blessed is he, blessed, blessed, right? You're familiar with the Beatitudes. Then he talks about us being salt and light and how we are to be influences in the world. Our actions are important. He talks about the law and how he came not to abolish it but to fulfill it. He talks about murder and adultery and oaths that are sworn evasively like with fingers crossed behind our backs with eyes for eyes and loving your enemies. And you've heard it said by those who don't understand God or his character, but I say to you, this is God and his character. It's in you. He goes into chapter 6 and says, this is how you should give. And this is how you should pray. And this is how you should fast. And by the way, you shouldn't be anxious. Don't be anxious about it. And then he comes to chapter 7 and he starts by talking about judgments and pearls. And then talks about God's generous example of loving us in a way that we would want God to love us, and therefore we ought to love other people in the way we would want them to love us. That the gate going to destruction is wide, easy to get through. That the gate going to life is narrow and difficult. That you'll know people by their fruits, especially pastors and prophets. The proof is in the pudding, so to speak. And then he ends with The wise man built his house upon the rock, summing it all up together. 
John Calvin says, in some part, Matthew gives us here detached sentences which ought not to be viewed as a continued discourse. I don't know. I, I can easily agree that the themes that I just went through are detached. But at the end of chapter 7, Jesus seems to sum up everything with the wise and foolish man illustration, saying, whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them, or does not act on them, is like this man or that man. And there seem to be some prevalent themes, some more pointed, but some broader, you know, the blessings at the beginning, the Beatitudes, but then a broader theme that's, that seems to be there present in everything, and that is that those who follow me are different, they march to a different drum. They march to a different drum. Those who follow me have my father as their father. Those who follow me emulate the character of my father as I do. Those who follow me make, an, make a difference, but not just a, a temporal difference. They make an eternal difference. And those who follow me do so because they hear my voice. And it's not just enough to hear, but you must hear. Whoever hears these words of mine and acts on them. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all repeat the phrase several times that Jesus says. He must have said it many, many times in his ministry. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And it's repeated and repeated. It's fascinating because he's acknowledging that something is true, that there are those people who have ears to hear and can hear, and that there are those people who don't and can't. John doesn't say it exactly that way in his gospel. He says, as Jesus is talking, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what does he mean, my sheep hear my voice? Well, it's, it's not simply sound waves. Anyone with physical hearing can catch sound waves, and there were many people around Jesus who caught what he said. They heard him, right? You and I may hear any voice of warning, admonition, or instruction from doctors or police or firemen or anyone who knows a right thing to do or way to go. And yet we may be unwilling to believe or obey, choosing to be deaf to its relevance to us, even if it may in fact save our lives physically. And Jesus was talking to people, many of whom heard his warnings and heard his calls, but they did not believe. They, did, they heard, but they didn't hear. They heard, but they didn't believe. They heard, but they didn't obey. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Doctors and policemen and firemen are dealing with temporal issues in our bodies, but here Jesus is dealing with the salvation of our eternal souls. Christians march to the beat of a different drum, the voice of the Good Shepherd. 
if you cannot hear and understand this voice, you cannot understand any of the Sermon on the Mount, which itself is an outlying principle for the Sermon. Because the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is very different. Jesus is taking all these themes and he's saying, well, you know, you can understand this this way, but I'm going to tell you the way that God understands it. You can understand it this way, but I'm going to tell you the way you need to understand it. You can understand this this way, but I'm going to tell you the, w- the way you need to understand this so that you yourself have life. And those who were able to did hear him. And they followed him. Just before our text in chapter 7 that we're going to get to, we have one of the most often quoted verses of the Bible. Most often quoted, ironically, by those who are completely deaf to the voice of Christ. And what is that verse? Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Most always quoted in a spirit of oppressive, persecuting judgment. And then when we hear it said to us, what do we do? Well, we fall on our faces and we kowtow to it because, boy, you got me there. What do I say? And listen, you are hearing a different drum. And when somebody says that, you should realize right away they haven't the slightest idea what they're talking about. They are just a worldling taking God's word abusively to try to silence his truth. John Calvin says, Judge not! These words of Christ do not contain an absolute prohibition from judging, but are intended to cure a disease, which appears to be natural to us all. We see how all flatter themselves, and every man passes a severe censure on others. This vice is attended by some strange enjoyment, for there is hardly any person who is not tickled with the desire of inquiring into other people's faults. All acknowledge, indeed, that it is an intolerable evil, that those who overlook their own vices are so inveterate, entrenched, against others, their brothers. This depraved eagerness for biting and censuring, slandering, is is restrained by Christ when he says, Judge not. It is not necessary that believers should become blind to perceive nothing, but only that they should refrain from an undue eagerness to judge, for otherwise the proper, proper bounds of rigor will be exceeded by every man who desires to pass sentence on his brother. We now see that the design of Christ was to guard us against indulging excessive eagerness or peevishness or malignity or even curiosity in judging our neighbors. He who judges according to the word and law of the Lord and forms his judgment by the rule of charity always begins with subjecting himself to examination and preserves a proper medium and order in his judgments. In other words, the people that quote that and don't know God are just judging you without any kind of restraint. And Jesus is teaching us how 
not to be that way. We're marching to a different drum. We're following the voice of the Good Shepherd. Calvin understood that Christians march to a different drum. Disciplined by, disciplined by our knowledge of the mercy and holiness of God the Father and our own sinfulness, we form judgments by the rule of charity. By the rule of charity. Now, why is it important to talk about judgments before we talk about the next verse, which is our text? Well, because we're not going to be under, under we're, it's not going to make sense for us to understand the next verse without judgments. Okay? So this is the verse that is our text. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces... Now, question, how do you figure out who's a dog and who's a swine and who's not? You don't even have to come to this verse. You just have to go back to where he says, you'll know them by their fruits. How are you supposed to know them by their fruits unless you look at the fruits and you do some kind of evaluation and make some kind of judgment? But not a worldly judgment. Not an earthly judgment, not a, sin, a sinful, wicked, rebellious, God-hating judgment, self-affirming judgment, but a judgment that comes with the charity of having received God's mercy in ourselves. So let's talk, let's talk dogs and pigs for a minute. What about dogs? Well, first... Dogs, they do not have discriminating palates. Did you ever notice this about a dog? You can take a nice, a nice uh, well-prepared piece of prime rib, and you can take three-day-old three roadkill skunk and put it on the, on the bowl, two bowls, and it's a toss-up which one the dog's going to go and, and have for lunch, Right? You can give a dog a doggy bed over here perfumed with the most wonderful oils that make us feel, oh, essential. <laughs> and, then, and then you can go over here and have a dog bed that you've smeared with cow manure. And it's very likely that the dog will go and sleep in this one and not in the perfume. Dogs... Are dogs. Pigs are different. Pigs know what they want. And it isn't pearls. Pigs want slop. And if you give them pearls, the minute they figure out that this isn't slop, they might decide to turn and chew on you for a bit. And I'm not kidding. You might not know that about pigs. But pigs are so aggressive to eat. They're not herbivores. They're omnivores. And they'll eat anything, pretty much. Their own young. Anything. 
and they'll eat you. Why would Jesus interrupt his sermon to talk about animal food? Why did he do this? Well, he's giving us a simile. Like you've all heard, he's as brave as a lion, right? It's a simile. And here he's talking about similes about people and their inability to see and appreciate God's work. People who are as undiscriminating and unaware as dogs. People who have porcine appetites that prohibit them from appreciating anything that is truly valuable. Who wouldn't hesitate to chew on anyone who offered them something fine rather than something coarse that would satiate their coarse appetite. So he's using simile to help us to understand dogs and pigs, or people who act like dogs, people who act like pigs. C.S. Lewis says in one of his essays, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak, We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what it's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. We have pig appetites. We don't know what's good. Identifying dogs and pigs in this context of our pearls is not immediately possible because we have to identify first what is holy and what is a pearl before we can begin offering them out and observing responses to help us in our identity parade, right? What is this pearl that we're offering? What are a Christian's pearls? Well, I want to give us a few examples to get us started reading from Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's one of my favorite pictures that that God gives to us of his kingdom, right? And so there is a pearl that is the kingdom of heaven. And you could say that that pearl has all kinds of things contained in it that are themselves pearls, like the pearl of the person of Jesus Christ, the pearl of the holiness of God, the pearl of the forgiveness of sins, the substitutionary atonement of God's satisfaction for our sin, the pearl of adoption by the Heavenly Father, so that He has, we have imminence, we can, we can know Him. We can talk to Him. We just prayed. We all prayed. We knelt and we prayed. We pray to our Father. That's not just nothing. That we have that access to God and that He hears us is not nothing. It's a pearl. The pearl of God's eternal Word that He's given to us to reveal those things to us that we needed to have revealed to us. The pearl of His good law in the Word. The pearl of healing through Christ. The pearl of God's provision to His people of everything that we need the pearl of the resurrection of the dead, the pearl of eternal glory. Now, have I exhausted it? Have I exhausted the kingdom of heaven? 
I got it all, didn't I? You may agree that all these doctrines are pearls, and they are. But if all they are to you is doctrine, you have no pearl. (laughs) You have no pearl. You have a nice meme for Facebook. Because the pearls don't come this way. They don't come as just assertions that you put up and that, you know, make this or that reformed person that you disagree with about this or that point feel a little bit nervous about, you know, make fun of him and I'm, you know, not... I'm hitting you with my hammer, and then he turns around and hits you with his hammer, and, and, you know, you've got these kinds of things. But this isn't pearls. This is doctrine. Doctrine is doctrine. It's true. But it doesn't become a, a pearl outside of us to offer up. It is eternally a pearl. It is, in the whole, a pearl. But that doesn't mean it's a pearl in you or one that you can produce. Pearls have to do with formation. Formation is necessary. How are pearls made? Well, in the business of pearl cultivation, you have what's called nucleation or the seeding of an oyster. They do it on farms by putting little bits of aggregate or uh, grains of aggregate inside the, the, the oyster. Or it happens naturally sometimes as an oyster picks up this little bit of aggregate, right? They seed it into the creature, and this foreign substance gets inside, and it starts to irritate the creature. And the oyster responds by coating the irritant over and over again with a substance or a layer that is in the, the layer of the pearl called the nacre, which is like what we would call the mother of the pearl, right? That area. It really is understood from old, old word that really has to do with and I don't want to take the analogy too far, but it, it's kind of like the dregs or the dross of the oyster is here. The garbage part of the oyster is where they put this. Okay? I don't know which came first in, in the naming of it. Okay? But in this environment, layer upon layer, a lustrous pearl is formed. And it is a difficult and irritating process for the oyster isn't it? Well, I don't know. Those things don't have pain, do they? That's not my point. It's obviously an irritant because it's producing the effects of having been irritated. How are pearls formed in Christians for them to display? Do you think you can produce a pearl in a different way? Galatians 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. There's an irritation, a conflict. We're very familiar with The benediction from Hebrews 13. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, 
working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. It's in there working. What's the sensation of that? Do you have a sensation of God working in you that which is pleasing in His sight? Oh yes, it's the most wonderful sensation. It's just marvelous. I always feel good. Especially when God's really working that which is pleasing in His sight in me. That really makes me feel good. I'm not blasphemous when I'm saying it's irritating. Because it's irritating not because of God's holiness, it's irritating because of our sin and our flesh. This is how pearls get made. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, he, our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Beautiful pearl. But if God is not working that which is pleasing in his sight within you, you have no pearl. You have no pearls to cast. Now pearls, we know pearls, what they are, how they come to us. And dogs and pigs have no appreciation for that which is pleasing in God's sight. You might present a precious gem that the Lord has painfully formed in your heart, and they may trample them with no appreciation, and further they may mock and revile and chew on you for presenting them at all. Because honestly, to dogs and pigs, pearls burn. They're like, they're annoying. They expose something that they don't want exposed. Their coarseness and their fleshliness and their sinfulness and their wickedness is exposed by the brilliance of the beautiful pearl. And they don't want to see it. Pigs like slop. They don't like pretty luminous spheres. People pigs like gossip. And you may have been a gossip. And God might have taken your gossip and he might have put that little seed in you, in the mother of pearl of your heart, and he might have turned you away from that gossip to a time when you actually are almost completely free of gossip and that you can talk to someone and you present to them this pearl and you just say, I can't gossip. I, God has done something for me. And they may appreciate it or they might just turn and bite you because you don't want to join them presenting slop. Okay? 
But now we're just coming to, I think, the most interesting thing. We're all quick to note that we should be careful about the swine. I mean, compared to what, I'm, what I think is maybe the most interesting thing, I suppose most of us, I have heard some of you refer to somebody or has referred to saying that that conversation might have been casting pearls before swine. Anybody heard anybody say that in the last year? Anybody said it maybe in the last year? Okay. And so we're kind of familiar with that. That's something that, yeah, we do talk about that. We talk about, we've got to be careful. You know, we got pearls and, and, and they're swine and, and we got to be careful. But even though we might talk about it, we ignore something in this text that's implicit. And it is quite beautiful when you think about it. And that is, it's implied that we should be about the business of casting pearls. Have you thought about that? It's, it's implied in the text. Well, no, you don't cast them to dogs and pigs, but why would he have had to say that if he wasn't assuming that we were in the business of casting pearls? Do you understand? And so what is it to cast pearls? Well, it is to present them, to place them before people, to display them. And I have had the privilege of having many of you come to me and, and take out a pearl of your life, and you've shown me these pearls. And I'll tell you something, it's a privilege to see. It's a marvel to see. And I realize the privilege I have in it. And so you, you bring them out, and what are they? Well, they're, they're your sins that God's delivered you from. And they're the sins of other people against you that God has given you forgiveness and, and healed you of. And they're just the circumstances of your life that, that God has allowed that you have had to come into conformity with His will over. And you have said, yes, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. And God, in that circumstance, is forming a pearl because your will doesn't want that to be done. Right? And so you have this pearl. And it's beautiful, beautiful. And sometimes when I've been in uh, groups of people, uh, somebody has brought out a pearl and they've shown it to everybody. Look at this pearl. And I have had occasion to actually say to the group, now listen to me, you're seeing a pearl today. You better not be a pig. Because what's being presented to you is holy and precious in the sight of God. You better not be a pig. We should be about the business of presenting pearls. Because we're always presenting something. The scripture says uh, in Philippians that many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ... Their God is their appetite. Their glory is their shame. It says in Jude that, that there are men who uh, cast up their own shame like foam. We're always casting up something. And it shouldn't be shame. <laughs> but that's what pigs do, cast up shame. We're supposed to be casting up pearls and not shame. 
Do you have pearls in your life? Has anyone ever seen them? Well, no, those are private. That's private. I don't want to talk about that. Has anyone ever seen the precious things that God has done inside of you? You have no greater resource to display for the glory of God and for the sake of the souls around you than the pearls God has worked in you. Those doctrines are pearls, but they're pearls of yours because they've been applied to you and they come out of you and God demonstrates his glory through them with your own life. You should display them. And I don't just mean old pearls. If you're old here today and you start talking to me again about that pearl of yours that was formed when you were 25, right? Yeah, I got this pearl. Let me hear it. It's a dusty old thing. Pull it out of your pocket, you know. I'm 60, 40 years younger than Richard. And I still have pearls. God is working in me. And Richard still has pearls. God is working in him. I hear him talk about them. And you know how we talk about our pearls quite often? We talk about them with our head going like this. And, and often we cry because we're talking about God's work in our lives. Pearls are the most precious things that we can share, but there's a great vulnerability to sharing them. Let's not talk about us for a second. Let's talk about the woman at the well. Did you ever think about Jesus meeting the woman at the well and the, the, the time of the nucleation, you know, where he takes that, in the conversation, where he takes that little, where would you say that little, uh, that little grain he plants in the mother of pearl in that woman's heart, where would you say that was happened in the conversation? I'm not quite sure. It could have been, well, no, you're wrong, you Samaritans. The Jews are right. That could have been the beginning. Or wait, how about, uh, you're right to say you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Oh, wasn't that pleasant? I perceive you're a prophet. What does she do, though? It's obvious that whatever Jesus said to her in those moments or in that hour, I don't know, whatever he said to her worked in her, and immediately the beginning of a pearl was forming. She even went back to town, and, you know, it was easy for her, having had five husbands and everybody knows she lives with somebody, it was easy for her to go to everybody in town and tell them about what had just happened. Hey, it's me, the village whore, the village tramp, this guy just told me everything about me. Which you already knew, but hey. And what happened? I suppose some of them just said, yeah, there she goes, village whore. But some of them said, let's go see. And they went and they heard Jesus. And they heard Him and they came back and they said, it's not just because of what you said. We believe it. How about the woman that's at the, at the house where Peter is there, where Simon is there, 
and she's the village whore, and she's washing Jesus' feet with her hair. Oh, that was easy. Wasn't that easy for her? No vulnerability there, right? Any vulnerability? Coming into a crowd of self-righteous rich people and, and, and getting on the floor and, and doing a, such a demeaning, debased kind of thing, washing somebody's feet with your hair while you know this guy's looking on saying, yep, there she is. Hey, Jesus, didn't you know who that was? Don't you know who this is? And what does Jesus say? Oh, she has a pearl, and you're a pig. Now, I'm paraphrasing, I know. But it's true, isn't it? She has a pearl, and you're a pig. She has been forgiven much, and she loves much, and she demonstrates it with this act of love to me. And you haven't even washed my feet when I came into your house, you pig. But demonstrating and showing these pearls is vulnerable because we're presenting to others the work of God in our lives. And in order to do so, we have to actually show them the mother of pearl. You know, we're kind of opening up. Here's the pearl, and here's the mother of pearl. God delivered me from gossip. I'm gossip. God is merciful. Look at that. And it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable. There are so many ways in which we're vulnerable when we present our pearls to those around us. It's a vulnerable business. Because we acknowledge our own sins, our own failures, our weaknesses, our inadequacies. We're, we're exposed. And those people who have ears to hear, it resonates. It resonates. Those people who have been forgiven much, it resonates. You know, we sit around with people who have been forgiven much, and we all bring out our pearls, and everybody goes, Oh, that's beautiful. That's the most beautiful thing. And we're not in danger of being bitten or trampled. And then this one shows us their pearl. Oh, that's beautiful. God be praised. Look at that. It's, it's God's work. It is His holy character. It is His person. It is His Christ. Here it is. Look at that. But it's a vulnerable thing to do. And it's powerful. Because when we do that... And as we do that to our spouses and our parents and our children and our siblings and our relatives and our neighbors and our co-workers and our fellow church members, the benefit is that they see the work of God and they have the opportunity to be provoked. Oh yes, I want a pearl. I'll sell everything I have if I can have that pearl. And they have faith. It is our most precious commodity as believers, the work of God in us. It's precious. You have benefited from other people's pearls. You could tell me you have. Do you have a pearl? 
Who will you allow to see God's beautiful pearl in you this week? Would you let somebody see it this week? Are you willing? Would you pray that God will make you able to tell somebody about his work in your heart? Testify to Christ this week and his goodness to you. It's going to be life to them. It was life to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your kind love that your love is incomprehensible to us, yet it's present within us by your own choice and action. And as we perceive it and begin to comprehend it and have it change our own hearts so that we may love others in the same way, we ask that you will make us alive, Father. Make us to see your work and make us to display your work to those around us, our children, our family members, our neighbors, the person next door, the person that we work with, Father. Give us faith to show others the work of Christ in our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.